to another BritFleets.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's guest is writer-director Harry Mitchell. Hello. Hi, hello. Thanks for having me. My pleasure, my pleasure. We've come to talk about your new film, Say Your Prayers, which is out now. So, who wants to start? I made a mistake. Yeah, you did, didn't you? A rather big mistake. (laughs) How do you suggest we fix this rather big mistake? Ilkley Literature Festival, culminating this Sunday with the controversial secularist Professor Bill Huxley. You told the wrong one. My book deals with rational thought. You don't see me burning effigies of Christ. Well, you look just like him from behind. Yeah, but everybody looks like everybody from behind. Detective Inspector Prof, I want suspension of all festival events for the next 48 hours. It's the biggest weekend in the bloody calendar. Yes, Martin, and there's been a bloody murder less than a bloody mile away. You're not the average festival goer, are you? What are you really doing here? I don't want to go to prison. Probably the saints went to prison. Didn't you remember any harm, did it? This time you must be certain, absolutely certain. There's no room for error. We shan't bite our tongues anymore. We shan't let them laugh at us, humiliate us. It's thoroughly enjoyable in all the right places and all the right reasons. Um, we'll go into that in a bit. But before we do, do you want to um, give people a brief synopsis as to what Say Your Prayers is all about? It's a black comedy about two brothers who, uh, for one reason or another, have ended up becoming quite radical Christian fundamentalists. And they are, they've been tasked with going to a lit- literature festival in, in the middle of Yorkshire to try and assassinate a sort of infamous uh, secularist academic. And we meet them killing the wrong guy. And the film kind of begins from there. Mm. No, it is. It's a brilliant cold opening. I loved it. Um, and uh, I was, um, I tweeted about it after I watched it. It was, um, I said that it was, it had shades of like sightseers meets kill list was my was my immediate thought about your film. So uh, those are two touchstones I enjoy. So the idea of combining them is uh, is always going to be enjoyable to my mind. Well, it's always that's a huge compliment. That's a huge compliment. You know, to to ever to ever you know make anything that reminds people of something like kill list or. Or sightseers, yeah, it's a huge compliment. Thank you. You, you, and Jamie Fraser wrote this. Um, yeah, and is that a co-write or is that he wrote and you directed and and then as the director got involved in the writing or was you writing it together? We were writing it together. I um, J- Jamie and I both did comedy. Jamie, I think, still does comedy. I don't do comedy anymore. So that's so we we met each other that way, and I floated a very early uh, idea that, that would eventually become the film to Jamie. And so then we started working on it together. So, okay, then. So that, that's good then. So, so my question, that's leading to the question of, so what was, what was the, the kernel then that, that sort of gave birth to what has become the film Say Your Prayer? Because it is um, radical. It was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it, I mean, it came from a few places, actually. It came... What was the initial kernel? I think the initial kernel was um, I was re-watching uh, uh, a Vida film, Ashes and Diamonds. Um, I don't know that one. Which it's, uh, it's, I think is second in, in, in the, the trilogy. I can't remember the name of the trilogy. Anyway, um, 
it's a film about two hitmen and it's and it was I'd gone to see it at the BFI because it was part of the Scorsese. Scorsese had done a season at the BFI of some of his most influential movies. And Ashes and Diamonds was one of them. And I, and I loved it the first time I saw it. So I went to go see it again. It's a wonderful film. It's, you can see its influence in so many other great movies, you know, in, in Leon the Professional, in, uh, you know, in, in, in any real kind of hitman duo, whether it be in Bruges or um, Pulp Fiction or whatever. Um, and I saw that and I started to think about a British comedic version of, of some of those elements in that movie. And then I got to think about the idea of a character who, who is a hitman, whose job it is to kill people, but who in his personal life really likes chin wagging with people. It's his favorite thing to do. And and it was just that as a comedic beat, and I took that. To, I took that to Jamie, and then, um, and then we started to to go from there, really, and ask ourselves questions like, why would people be charged to kill someone in this day and age, and what ideologies would they? Be attached to or attracted to and this is this is also five years ago now 2015 when we started talking about it. so that's you know that was pre-trump um if you can imagine if you can imagine what life was like no i can't pre- no it's like trying to imagine like. pre-covid yeah it's exactly right um but you know that was a time that you know obviously we we were starting to see um uh, political extremism extremism and ideological extremism but not to the extent that that we have now i think I think our conversations would have been quite different if we were making that film now. Anyway, essentially, we, we ended up on, on religion. And that's why we started talking about religion and making, making these guys religious fanatics. I like the idea of, of the subverting expectations of a, a sort of the, the, the trope of the, 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 the monolithic or even the, the sort of mute killer who says nothing but is very effective to the indiscreet, always up for a chat... Um, actually, the killing is the last thing that's really on his mind. It's a really nice touch, that. Yeah, yeah. I also just, um, I, th- I guess that was another point. A part of it was going, this this guy doesn't want to kill. He has to kill. Why does so? Why does he kill? But also, yeah, just I think any any character whose main thrust in life is just to you know be friendly and chat with people and be interested in people. I think is always going to be an endearing character. So to match that with, you know, a, a job ostensibly, which is to murder. It's kind of the opposite. It's the opposite of a psychopath, isn't it, really? Somebody who's empathetic is, is the opposite of a psychopath, yet he's got a psychopathic profession. When you're writing this, what, what were the challenges in terms of, obviously, there's a, there's a, a dark comedy gives you a, gives you a great scope, but equally there's, there's kind of absurdity to dark comedy and... But then there's also dramatic. There's almost a drama as well because you because I think the film makes some very serious points in and amongst all of the the killing and the jokes and the japes. It's not just ha ha, isn't that absurd? It's actually Jesus, that really is absurd. If I sit back and think about it, you know, it's tricky. My, I mean, <clears throat> my favourite films are always the ones that have light and shade and tread tread a line between drama and and comedy. Um, 
and it's it can be and i think they're my they're my favorite because they reflect life but i think it's the it's the, what you do well is that it would have been easy to go oh church is bad like as if that's a macro point that no one's ever considered whereas what you've done is you've created a character in father enoch who it's just an evil bastard. It doesn't matter. It could be a, the manager of a football team. Never mind the head of a church, and that and that would be and that would be he would have convinced two vulnerable people who could easily manipulated to do their do his bidding. You can imagine that. So it's kind of like the church bit gives you the easy understanding, but actually this is about evil people manipulating vulnerable people to do their bidding, which is a fairly serious point. Totally. I mean, uh, yeah. I, when it when it came to religion, I think that was one, that was something we were, you know, wanted to be the most careful of, which was that we weren't um, weren't just making a slightly lazy point, as you say, of just saying, well, all, all organised religion is bad, mm. um, because it's not. Uh, I mean, the the oh, I can't remember who said it, but someone said there's no such thing as bad religions, just bad people, which I think mm. speaks to the point that you you were making. I'm, you know, there are people who would even argue with that, which is fair enough, but. I think we, Jamie and I are both secularist or atheists, however you like to describe it. And so we wanted to work hard to ensure that what we weren't making was a sort of self-satisfied secularist, pat yourself on the back, mm. aren't we clever comedy. And actually, you know, it's been, for me, it was an incredibly interesting process and one in which I've changed my, you know, only, only by a degree, but, you know, I've changed my views and my my thoughts on on organised religion. You know, I did. I, 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 used to I know. I know. I know. Podcast shouldn't be about the host, but I did do a kind of short film about about trying to criticise religion. Me and the director, we we set out with that goal, and we did a reading yeah. of the first draft. And obviously, we we're meant to be characters who are having doubt about their faith and stuff. And the first reading, the first question we got was, "Do do either of you not about this?" They went, "Do you, either of you two believe in God?" And we went, "Oh God, no, 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 no." And they went, neither do your characters. And you like, you realise that to be critical, you've actually got to still be considerate of what it means to have faith. You can't just go, aren't they daft? It's all imaginary. It doesn't, it doesn't go anywhere. Yeah, I, t I, I totally agree. And also to, you know, I think, I think the perspective I ended up, I used to, I think, it's interesting having not grown up in a religious household. When I hit my teenage years, I very much became quite militant in terms of my atheism. And I think the reason for that was, was because I was desperately trying to find a, an identity. And so, and so my atheism became my identity. And, and you know, I would enjoy thinking about how ridiculous it was to be a, a, a person of faith. <clears throat> um, I think I've reached a position there, pardon me, I think I've reached a position now where um, I, I realise, you know, for me, as a secularist, it, by the same token, faith is a human creation that's being created to in, uh, ensure civilization could exist, can exist, has existed. And to kind of poo-poo organized religion and poo-poo faith would be to undermine the vast amounts of incredible art, music, literature um, uh, that, that's come from it and come out of it. You know, everything we do now is, it, particularly in the Western world, is is influenced still heavily, whether we know it or not, by by the Christian faith. So why, you know, why poo-poo that? Now, your two hitmen, are, one of them, obviously, for, for a lot of people with the knowledge of Harry Potter, will recognise uh, Harry Mellon as Tim. 
me personally, I'd not seen Tom Brook before he plays Vic, and he was an absolute revelation to me. I think you, you that was some brilliant casting. There was there was genuine sibling rivalry on the screen, as far as I could tell. No, but they you know they might as well be. They're they're both oh, they're such fantastic actors. I mean, we were so. I know everyone says this, but we are so lucky to, to to get those guys. Just thinking of getting Harry in. How did you get? And obviously, he's the poster, the poster boy for the film. You know, in in, it's like. So, what was what was the the approach to him? Was that was that getting the script out and seeing if he likes, or was that talking about it? Was how was it? Yeah, it was just that we sent it out to him. I went for a coffee with him, and he said yes fairly quickly. I mean, Harry, as you, I mean, everyone, everyone obviously knows Harry from. Um, uh, the Harry Potter movies. Um, he's he's had a, a fantastic career since then. Um, but uh, I think rarely, for, for screen anyway, rarely does he play the lead and take, uh, and, and, and take those leading parts, A. And B, I think he's often given, I think off the back of Dudley, he's often given, you know, either villainous characters or, or slightly less likable characters. And so I think for him, the double whammy of, you know, taking, of, of being the lead in this film, but also playing a character who is ultimately incredibly likable, I think, um, I think is what drew him, part, part of what drew him to the project. It's an odd, it's an odd role, that idea of a likable hitman, um, to say the least. I mean, that's, that's, that's good. But, but it never, it, it never felt like, um, it never felt odd, if you know what I mean. I mean, watching it, it felt quite plausible. In, in obviously in the auspices of your film, but but it, but obviously every time you're reminded that he's not really a killer, is he? He doesn't really dig this, and it's kind of like it, he just wants to go out and look. He obviously wants to like people, and that's it's just such a mm. and he does it so well. I mean that, like you described with the first instance where they, they sort of make their first error, and there's a whole exchange over a jam sandwich, which is as far removed from any hitman I've ever seen, you know, in in a movie, but it's wonderful because it's a very human moment. It's he knows he shouldn't, and then he does, and then it's like, wow. Yeah. Well, he's just a guy who's, you know, best suited really to leaning over garden walls and asking people how their weekend was. That's, you know, that's, that's where the character would be best placed. And unfortunately, he's, um, he's also a product of his environment and is being told this is the right thing to do. This, this is the, this is the way you need to behave, and he he thinks okay. Well, I guess I suppose that makes sense. Now, me 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 kill this reference, and this is one of me it was one of me notes I made when I was watching it. Is um, I don't know whether you did it overtly or not, but the scene with the blasphemous guys in the outside the pub in the in the, the pub table, and he goes over and yes. threatens him, is the inverse of Neil Maskell in the hotel dining room where he threatens to ram the guitar down the guy's throat if he mentions Jesus again. It's G. I mean, I just thought it was really clever. I'm not sure whether you consciously were inverting that scene, but it felt it felt it felt like it was a little bit of that, where you've got the hero is the overtly Christian going stop with the blasphemy, um, but obviously, us knowing who he is, that's loaded like a gun because he literally could kill him. Yeah, I I wish I really want to say yeah, that was my intention. That was that was. I planned that all along. Um, unfortunately, this is the first time I've thought about that. You're so you're so right. Um, I mean, I saw I saw Kill This when it came out. I don't think I've seen it again, but I you know obviously loved it at the time. Um, 
and it will have had undoubtedly would have had um a kind of subconscious influence but i can't i can't say hand on heart that that was an intentional uh, uh subversion happy accidents are always good but it's nice and like i say it's nice to get I, I, it was nice being able to fit it in the canon and given the the complete inverse nature of the religious zealot being the one who's the aggressor it's quite nice um now dci bro is it bro or bruff how do i say <clears throat> bruff bruff is a fairly hard-boiled and cynical character, to say the least. Where, where, did, uh, where did the idea of slotting that into your story come from? Because it would have been very easy just to kind of be very procedural, but you've actually heightened that character in and amongst all the absurdity. Yeah, well, we wanted to have a slightly comedic B-plot going on. Um, it's also a nice trick to have if you you know, found yourself in a darker moment and you want to inject it with a form of levity. So we started working on this Bruff character and, uh, you know, she, she, she kind of exists in a slightly different movie and we kind of were, were happy with that. We kind of embraced that. We kind of liked the idea that there were actually kind of three different movies going on, in, you know, three different worlds going on and they were all colliding slightly stylistically in the same way that you have all of these characters who represent these different ideas and they're all colliding slightly, you know, they're all colliding. Um, and so Bruff was born out of that and we, we wanted to have uh, the, the slightly archetypal, gruff-talking, slightly corrupt detective figure um, we wanted her to be a woman because we've seen that character before, sure, but uh, time and time again we see it with with blokes, and um, and we wanted we didn't want her to change at the end. We didn't want her to, you know, to 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 go through some big story arc and then come out the other side a different changed person. She was who she was. She begins as she is, and she ends as she is, and that's what. She's what she's wanted. that wonderful combination in my head of like um, the the trope that you're used to seeing, which is the big city cop come to the small town. But in fact, in reality, she thinks she's that, but she's the girl that never left and resents everyone around her because she's never left. And that comes out in every interaction she has. It's a it's a wonderful concoction. Oh, I'm, I'm pleased you liked it, and and Anna obviously brings. Um... Yeah, Anna, I should say Anna, Anna Maxwell Martin plays the role, and she's she she's from Yorkshire, isn't she? Is, is she is she from that neck of the woods? She is, yeah, yeah. She's from Beverly. Yeah, so she really went to the max on the with the accent. It's uh, it really it, it's not like it yeah. was convincing; it was genuine. <laughs> yeah, well, she was saying when we first spoke about it, she was saying that you know she she knows those women, she knows all of them. She sat in hair salons with those women as a kid. So she she to draw from and and really enjoyed doing it. Going back to like I say my enjoyment of watching Tom Brook play um, play Vic. What was what was your as a director talking to me about that character? And obviously he's he's the guy that's obviously the most closest to what you think of as a hitman. But obviously he's still a brother of uh, of Tim the he's, he's the character and the, so they are a duo. What what was your uh, your sort of directing instructions with him, or what was your conversations with him like about how to play Vic and you know where to go to eleven and when to when to be you know bubbling around three? Yeah, well, the first thing to say is that when when I was casting Vic, I wanted to cast someone who could have played Tim, 
and Tom, Tom Tom's I've, I've I've been a fan of Tom as an actor for years and years and years. He does loads of stage stuff, but he's also you know got a real good um, a brilliant CV for for TV and film as well. He's been in you, you know the boat that rocked. He, he he's in Sherlock. He's in Preacher, and he he often plays slightly more Tim-like characters, uh, you know, either slightly dimmer or slightly sweeter. And he's got that side to him and he plays that incredibly well. And so, um, and so when, when we went out to him, I knew that he had that in his locker and, and he could bring that out if he wanted to. And he, you know, he only brings it out once or twice in the movie and it's very slight and subtle, but I think it's enough to, do what's do the important thing of humanizing him as a character and stopping him from just being um uh kind of like you say at, at 11 the whole time and just this rageful individual that we can't get a grasp on um and then in terms of the conversations that we were having i think one of the first things he asked me was um was was is this Basil Fawlty, or is this Begbie? Yeah, and I think I think essentially what he meant was, are we laughing? Is this guy just a comedy character, or is he, you know, is he real? And 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 obviously, I you know, I went. It's it's the latter. He's a real human being. Um, and so from that point, I think it's you know, for it's then Tom's job, which he does a brilliant job of doing, which is finding the reality in that character and and hopefully once you're finding the reality in that character then whether whether you're at 11 or 3 it, you know that's going to start to come instinctively the mark as it were professor huxley in your uh, i mean i don't know whether you could have actually got anyone who could be more like christopher hitchens if you tried in uh, roger allen i mean it's almost like i felt like if i closed my eyes it just was and he'd been reborn or something uh, was that? I'm guessing that was like the easiest casting in the world in some senses. Yeah, yeah. I mean, w w precisely. Yeah, you think of. I mean, I mean, almost um, uh, too dangerously close. You know, you don't, you don't, you don't want anyone to think that the character we were writing was specifically Hitchens because it wasn't. Um, but uh, but also, it's glorious to be able to get someone like Roger to agree to do the project and then and then go great. Do, do your own thing <laughs> whatever you do it's gonna work yeah because because i because i went because i went in cold you see i didn't i didn't know anything i didn't watch your trailer I, and obviously i'd seen i'd seen the i'd seen the artwork but I, once i'd read the premise i thought well i just need to watch this and it'll it'll be it'll happen. so then when he appears i didn't know he was in it till till he appears and then he starts being roger allen <laughs> and it's like fucking hell it is Christopher Hitchens. It just felt. I was like, "What a!" Per it was like a perfect moment. We're like, "Of course, Roger Allen would be, would be the guy." <laughs> and is and is Huxley is Huxley a reference to Brave New World? Is that is that coming? Are we coming in for that? It's actually a reference to uh, Aldous Huxley's grandfather. Okay, okay. Um, who uh, was. Uh, I'm going to get it wrong now. I think it's I think it's John Huxley. I think it's as 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 Roger's character is in the film, who was a um, academic and pal of Darwin. And when the on the Origin of Species was published, yeah, and and Darwin went to Ilkley 
just after it was published to to go have a relapse. Yeah. Darwin sent it to three of his mates and Huxley was one of them. To kind of, you know, essentially say, Am I, what's what do you what do you make of this? Am I about to get annihilated? Am I about to have to, you know, move into the basement and never be seen again? Mm. And, and Huxley of the three of them was his biggest supporter and went on to be a, a kind of uh, I, I'm sure. I'm sure there'll be academics who tell me I've got entirely wrong. But in, from what I've read, went on to be a bigger supporter of the theory of evolution than Darwin himself. Went on to be more hardcore about the whole thing. Dar- you know, Darwin. Some would suggest had uh, it, had a difficult relationship with his own theory because he kind of was a man of faith, or he, you know, you lived back then. Everyone's everyone's got faith, so. You know, he he found it incredibly difficult to wrestle with his faith and his discoveries. Whereas I think Huxley was more like, "This is it. Here we go. Yeah, yeah, Let's yeah. Run with the this. future, the future is over there. Let's go with it." Yeah, yeah. Now, so that's what the reference was. Now I've mentioned him already, but but I want to talk about it specifically. I thought I thought Derek Jacobi's performance as Father Enoch was something very special. It was, it's obviously he's not he's not he's not a major part of the film, but. He he absolutely owns the moments that he's in. Now you as a as a director, and and I, and I I want to group Roger Allen into this. It's like, what what are you able to learn working with such sort of masters of their craft when you're making a film with them? How does how does that rub off on you? And what and what indeed do you even say to them when you're going? Well, look, um, Derek, can you uh, do? I need what I need is you know is is that a is that still a, is he still someone you can have a conversation with? Is it? I think I think part of the reason. Uh, Derek and Roger have such successful careers is because not only are they brilliant at what they do, but they are so so easy to work with. Um, you know, and I think and I think that's part of their longevity. If you can be both brilliant and easy to work with and receptive to to the director and 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 what what they think then people are going to want to keep working with you obviously because what more can you can you ask for i mean obviously from my perspective i'm a relatively young director and and i and i was i was t- uh, terrified i mean hopefully hiding it well but absolutely terrified you've you've got award winning actors uh, who are national treasures and there's you and you're thinking what what um, what on earth am I going to say to them? What, what, what? I can't say anything to them. But I think, hopefully, or I found anyway, that once you're on set, you realise, okay, I do, I do have a way that I see this, and and a, and a way that I'd like to try and put this together in the edit. And so you can, you know, if you have little notes, it's very rarely about the acting itself. It's more to do with, you know, could could you try it like this because it would help with this. And like I say, every time, um, I mean, with, with Derek, you give him a note and he goes, yes, of course. And then you see him and he, he thinks about it and then you do it and he just delivers your note, but perfectly, but, but, you know, he, he, but he makes it his own and, and, and delivers the performance where you go, well, he's done my note, but he's also made it 10 times better. And also I will, I will say that, um, but the one time I uh, gave him a bum note, he said, "Yes, absolutely." He did it, and I could and I could tell that it was a bum note because it wasn't going to be him. 
it wasn't going to be him doing it wrong. It was going to be my note. Really? So, you, you, um, could, you could see that so starkly? Yeah, yeah. I could see, because, yeah, I I could just go, I I could literally see, yeah, that's my that's my note that's done that. And so I went up and said, What in particular do you think um, he was able to bring to the character, sort of when you think about what you, what you had on the page, and then suddenly he's performing... Father Enoch, what 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 little bits did you see come out of it? You were like, oh, I wasn't expecting that, but I like it. I mean, he's got an innate ability to be incredibly charming, you know, and he's played incredibly charming um, characters throughout his career, as well as slightly more villainous ones. So being able to just turn that on when he needs to turn it on is, uh, you know, it puts a it puts a tingle down your spine immediately i mean he brings he brings everything he brings an innate intelligence that i don't think can necessarily be acted and it does what you always want to happen with your writing which is that it makes it sound really good it's an interesting choice to word that because i think i think intelligence over experience is not the same you can be experienced and still not be intelligent can't you i suppose is what you're saying it's like he's 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 considering the moment as much as he's considering i am an experienced actor Totally, yeah, and he and he's he's bringing, um, he's he's he he brings everything to the role. You know, it wasn't just a holiday, it wasn't just a kind of a you know because I think we only had, I think it would have only been like four days with Derek or something, um, but he he came and he brought everything to it, and he, he also knew his lines down to a T, and he had a lot of lines, and he had a lot of scripture that he had to to learn. And, you know, I've done a bit of acting and uh, with far less lines and, and get it wrong all the time. But he didn't fluff once, you know, having to do it again and again and again. Um, and all of those things. I mean, I know and I feel like it's slightly undermining Derek Jacobi by saying, oh, he was good at learning his lines. But I just mean, like, he was not only brilliant, but, but a consummate professional. And I think those two things go hand in hand. But I think a message for the people who might be listening who are aspiring actors is that that's not to be underestimated as part of the job because it's all hard enough as it is. So the more you can control, which is learning lines, that's not exactly uncontrollable, is it? Um, is, is the easier you make the, the, the harder variables to deliver. You use a male choir motif, which in the opening sequence is, is, a, is a tad sort of absurd and surreal, but actually it becomes a motif that lives throughout the whole film and is a reflection, I think mostly of Tim's, of Tim's mind, I think is where we're going with it. Um, it's not always just that, but essentially that seems to be part of its its use. Jesus Christ. What did you just say? What did you just say? Oh, that's just words. It doesn't mean anything. Make it up to from a kind of screenwriter point of view first how does that look on the page and two where did that motif idea come from well from a screenwriter screenwriter's perspective you have to do a lot of the work beforehand because you're essentially writing the score into your script um i mean we didn't choose every song beforehand but a lot of those songs that they sing were written into the script you know it says a chorus appears they sing pleasant and delightful. Okay. Um, okay. 
because you know because that's uh, they're not always in situ but when they are in situ that's that's what what happens and um i think particularly for that opening song it was important you know because it is quite a left field idea it was important for producers and um and actors and, and anyone who's reading the script for the first time to get an idea of really how we imagined that chorus to sound like and what we envisaged them being. So, you know, putting in an initial song was important. Um, in terms of where they came from, they weren't in the first draft. So they weren't an initial idea. They That's were in the second draft. Okay. Yeah. And it was when they were put in the second draft that I thought, yeah, uh, yeah I'm really excited about this film. Um, you know, this is this is giving it the edge I think it needs in order to make sense for me. Where did I? Where did it come from? That's I mean, sometimes I think when people talk about where ideas came from, I think they must just make them up because I feel like there's so many ideas where I don't remember where they came from. I know for sure that um, we that part of the reason we put them in there is is. It goes back to what we were talking about before, which is that we didn't want this film to be a film that said um, God definitely doesn't exist or, or to be a, a, pure, a purely from an atheist standpoint. We also definitely didn't want it to be a film that suggested that God did exist. But I think using this magical realist choir who, who are not overtly connected to any form of religion or spiritualism or, or you know, or, and could just be thought of more like a Greek chorus, I think allowed us to kind of just plant the notion of, hey, they're not, there's, that, in our film, there's something, there is something else. We don't know what that something else is. It might just be a bit of film, a bit, bit of interesting filmmaking, but it, there is something else. So that's kind of why we went with them in the end. It's effective because, because you can, it, I think if it had just been that one moment, it'd have been a bit like, what was that for? Whereas, Right. Whereas it kind of echoes, and yeah, I then thought, thinking about it more as we talk, it's, it, it, yeah, it gives you that kind of reminder of the bigger picture. Like there's beautiful music come out of religion that isn't necessarily about being religious or not. You can just enjoy a melody and you can sing songs without really getting behind the meaning of them. I mean, I've, you know, Onward Christian totally. Soldiers, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not a verse, and I'm not signing your film, but I'd be, I'm not, I'm not going to, I've sung it a lot of times, but I've never meant one word of it yet. Um, no, no, no. That's a fun song. So yeah, so I say, I don't, I don't that, like, on top of the literal element of including music, but it's such a beautiful image visually to sort of again say, like, like in the opening, in, in the opening sequence, you've got this suited and smart male choir just perched on a hillside in the in the Yorkshire Dales. It's a, it's a really striking image, and then the voices, everything. You're like, whoa. And I also, I, I love that it ties it into the location. You know, that's that was part of it as well. Um, uh, that is that we wanted to get a, a an actual Yorkshire-based male voice choir, which is what we got. That's a male voice choir there, um, and that was all part of it. Well, look, um, let's remind people then. Uh, Say your prayers is available now, and how can people see it? I believe just on all of the usual streaming platforms. It's on Amazon, uh, iTunes, Virgin, Sky, um, probably a couple more. Thank you for giving us your time on the Britflix podcast. Thanks very much for having me. 